Hey there, I am hard at work making two things happen that have to do with this show. The first is Unthinkable Season 4. Yeah, that's right. Season 4 will come out later this year, along with that second project I mentioned, my book. My first ever book. Ah! It's called Break the Wheel, and it's going to share a lot of stories and ideas for being better than best practices, because I think best practices actually hold us back from doing our best work. For now, here's an oldie but goodie, an episode I would call Sneaky Good from the Archives of Unthinkable. I hope you enjoy. One of my favorite words in the world is lugubrious. I mean, just, just saying it out loud is so satisfying. Lugubrious. If I told you to look up the definition of that word, lugubrious, what might you do? Probably what most of us would do. Quickly search Google for the definition, and bam, there it is, right at the top in seconds. But would you think to walk over to a bookshelf, pull out a physical dictionary, and go flipping through thousands of pages? Chances are, no. We don't think about the dictionary. It's just not part of our life. We, we barely even use them, and we certainly don't have brand loyalty to any one dictionary. So how does it sound to you if I said your job as a marketer is now to make the dictionary cool? How about lugubrious? It means looking or sounding sad or dismal, by the way. Well, not so fast with that thought. I work with these people who are super smart, super fast, very sassy, and I'm in the office constantly laughing and learning. That is Lisa Schneider. Lisa is the chief digital officer at Merriam-Webster's Dictionary. And in her efforts to make the dictionary exciting, her team has set Twitter on fire, sparked a media frenzy, and even trolled a president. I know words. I have the best words. Trolled that president to the horror of millions and the delight of many millions more. I'm Jay Akunzo, and I'm sick of all the average content marketing out there. I believe the path to do more exceptional work is to trust what makes you an exception. In other words, trust your intuition. It's unthinkable. Unthinkable. Adjective. Not capable of being grasped by the mind. Oh, hey, hey there, dictionary. Good to be reintroduced. Good morning, Jay. Good morning. Let's get on with the show. Here's your long-distance dedication. No, 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 no. It's not. It's not that kind of show. It's just you've been on the shelf a while. There's a lot of stuff you have to catch up with. It just, just, just stick around. You'll see. When I tell people that I work for the dictionary unanimously unanimously the first thing they answer with is oh my god that's so cool but cool was not at all how you describe merriam-webster's marketing specifically their all-important twitter account but don't take my word for it we have a whole book full of words right here with us after all here are just a few of those words that lisa and her team have really used to describe their early marketing attempts stayed stayed adjective Marked by settled sedateness and often prim self-restraint. Predictable. Predictable. Adjective. To declare or indicate in advance. Bland. Bland. Adjective. 
not irritating, stimulating, or invigorating. I came in and I was having this great time and then I looked at our social media feeds that were really bland and pre-programmed and not at all interactive and there was this huge disconnect. Every morning, the company would tweet a word of the day. Every evening, they'd share a quiz testing your knowledge of definitions over and over. Every morning, every evening. Day after day after day after day. But something just wasn't adding up for Lisa. So here, everybody I meet thinks that working at the dictionary is this great, really interesting thing. And and not all the people I meet are word nerds. I mean, I'm totally a word nerd, but I do talk to other people. And lexicographers... Lexicographer, noun, authors or editors of a dictionary. ...are very interesting because they have to follow language change. Contrary to popular belief... Dictionaries are not responsible for preserving a sacred set of rules about our language. That rigidness that you're probably picturing is more appropriate for a grammar stickler. Oh, and by the way, Oxford commas or get out. But uh, yeah, lexicographers are much different. We, we call ourselves descriptive, not prescriptive. It's not our job to sit up there in an ivory tower and tell people what words should mean. We catalog language as it is used. And so in order to be open and objective and interested enough to follow language change, you have to be both very engaged in in all of this and and very open um, to change and very funny. So where people might assume that, you know, it's a dusty book on a shelf and it's a bunch of stuffy people, you know, kind of defending language as it should be, the truth is really the opposite. These people are fun, witty, and wonderful. But despite all that... They were still posting that boring stuff to Twitter, that staid, predictable, bland stuff. Fixing something like that would surely take a shift of Brobdingnagian proportions. Brobdingnagian. Adjective. Marked by tremendous size. I think we should just stick with ginormous. Easy dictionary. You're descriptive, not prescriptive. Take it down a notch. Lisa and Merriam-Webster faced a big problem. They had to improve upon that vapid voice on Twitter and really in all of their content. Now, today, it's never been easier to just copy what someone else does or to find a set of influences that you can use to build upon. But that's a fine line, copying versus using influences. And I ran this idea of this fine line by unthinkable producer Andrew Littlefield, and he totally understood that struggle and he had an idea for a story that could help us understand it. Whenever I read some brilliant piece of writing, I have this tortured inner monologue with myself. Maybe it sounds familiar to you. Ugh, they're just so creative. I'll never be that good. If I could just copy the way they use similes, or or if I could just describe a character the way they do, God, my style would be on point. But I can't just copy them. Then I'm nothing more than a poser. If I just mimic my heroes, I risk becoming generic. Every creative person knows that, right? No, I don't think it's much of a risk. Say what? 
because we must be influenced by everyone. It's not an option to not. Hey, what's the deal? Stop interrupting my tortured inner monologue here. Who are you and what the hell do you know about being creative? Hello, my name is Mario Biltston and I'm a jazz trombonist. Oh, right. Okay, I'm listening. You can't play jazz if you've never heard jazz before. That's insane. Mariel knows a thing or two about being creative. She makes her living as a jazz trombonist living in New York City. She records albums and teaches students, too. But she also listens. A lot. Um, my first, the first trombonist I listened to and fell in love with and who I'm very much in love with still is J.J. Johnson, who was the, the trombonist that pioneered bebop trombone. Um, and he was, is one of my biggest influences. And, but then from there, you know, there's Curtis Fuller, Thelonious Monk, Ahmad Jamal. These are a mix of piano players. Um, I love Ben Webster and Coleman Hawkins on tenor saxophone, um, I love James Brown and Otis Redding and Eddie Palmieri and, you know, there's, it kind of runs the gamut. So those influences inform our playing and everything we do, but it's very hard to really replicate exactly someone's playing because let's say I wanted to replicate Curtis Fuller. He lived in a different time. He was a black man. I'm a white woman. I mean, there's so many different, you know, we lived completely different lives and I'm also don't have the experience that he had at the height of his career. Uh, and so there's no way, it's almost impossible <laughs> to be a copycat because there's so many different influences and he had his so many influences. And so I don't think it's, it's much of a risk unless you're really going at it as, I'm going to copy this note for note. You see, it's not just the notes that make up her style. It's her entire life experience. That experience is completely unique to her. Even if another trombone player listened to the exact repertoire of jazz greats that she did, the output would be different because their interpretation of that music is different. Not everyone's listened to exactly the same same people as me, nor do they have the same life experience as me. So my intentions of making music are, are uniquely mine. To be, to be exceptional, you must be curious. Surround yourself with as many creative musical types of people as you can, and just continue being hungry. It's a funny thing, finding your own voice. There's that fine line between being inspired by someone else and just being a cheap imitation of them. But as always, I don't think it's the tactic so much as how you approach the tactic. Or, emphasized better here as your narrator, how you approach the tactic. Two words stuck out to me the most from Mariel's story. First... My intentions of making music are uniquely mine. Intentions. And second... And just continue being hungry. Hunger. When you combine intentions and hunger, I think you get an aspiration. You plan for something to happen in the future. It's your intent to make it happen. And you're not satisfied with what's happening now. You're hungry for change. For something more. Intention plus hunger, equals an aspiration. And if you anchor to the right aspiration, man, you give yourself something seriously powerful, your own unique context, 
a sort of filter through which all your influences and all the generic expert advice out there must pass. Because things that influence or things that instruct, they all now serve your context, your aspiration, all to varying degrees. I think that's the difference between standing on the shoulders of giants and leaning against them like crutches. In the case of Merriam-Webster, they were doing what most of us do, anchoring to what works. But it wasn't aspirational enough. What works on Twitter in the generic sense is what they were doing. Post consistently, pre-schedule all your stuff, and link back to your site. That is not aspirational enough. And that is why Lisa Schneider decided to throw another aspirational anchor away into the future to begin a transfiguration of the entire brand. Transfiguration. Noun. An exalting, glorifying, or spiritual change. I can't tell you why they were posting word of the day in the morning and a call to action to play a game in the afternoon and nothing else. And, you know, it's called social media. Like, you can talk to people. <laughs> and and there was none of that sociability and there was none of that tone that you hear in the office. And I couldn't tell you why. I can just tell you that it was really clear to me that there was this huge gap and we were missing out on an amazing opportunity to, in fact, show everybody how cool we really are. That is a great aspirational anchor. Let's show the world how cool we really are. There's intent, there's hunger, and there's one very powerful result when you have a great aspirational anchor. It makes your work personal. You know, the dictionary is made by people. And so these people were so fun and so smart and so entertaining. One of the first really brilliant things that somebody did was this, what we call our emoji thread, which is using emoji to illustrate the difference between words that sound alike, but either are, you know, homophones or homographs, either words that sound alike, but are different words or words that are spelled the same, but are still different words. An example was um, palate as in, you know, your taste. P-A-L-A-T-E with a tongue emoji right next to it. Um, palette as in something that you have your paintbrush on. P-A-L-E-T-T-E, plus a little paint palette emoji right next to it. And, and palette as in a stockpile of things or something that you, that you sleep on. P-A-L-L-E-T, with a little yellow face and some Zs coming out of it. And so that was really just fun and clever. It was a clever way of looking at language and a clever way of illustrating commonly confused terms. And that did really well. But we knew that we needed to get a dedicated social media manager in order to really accomplish what we wanted to accomplish. And so when we did that and when we hired somebody to do that full time is when it really took off. Their new hire, appropriately enough, came through Twitter. A woman named Lauren Naturale saw the posting and immediately reached out to Lisa. And this is somebody who is, you know, way overeducated in, in the field of English academically. She has a master's. She almost had a PhD. She taught English for a while. And so this was somebody who really um, deeply understood our mission and, and cared about it and was passionate about our mission, who had the grasp of, of language in order to be able to be quick. I mean, we've got a whole team of people on Slack backing um, each other up. And so, you know, if there's a question, if something happens, there's always a lot of chatter like, oh, someone asked this on Twitter, what should I say? And and so in terms of some of the real details of defining or words or why we've done something, there's plenty of support there. But 
there is somebody on the front lines who can do a lot of this without anything checking without having to do research. And so if you would hire somebody who had this great social media track record, but didn't have these skills, I don't believe that the effect would be the same. And it's on, on the outside looking at it, it's so creative and there's such a clear personality, but the things that are making it great are not like channel specific. In other words, you can have a great tone of voice through any medium. How did you guys land on focusing on Twitter? Because I see a lot of brands that are going to spread too thin across a million different channels. And so you have this insight. Now you actually have a dedicated person. Why was it Twitter uh, versus like a little bit everywhere? We already were on Twitter and Facebook, and so it made sense to start where we were. And the Twitter just honestly took off. It just was, again, it was this really natural, organic fit, because I think this idea of being sassy in real time, of answering somebody in the minute, autocorrect has no idea of the power of teenage girls to change language or, you know, coming up on Memorial Day and being like, hmm, there's a hot dog a sandwich. Hmm. Let's let's look at the evidence and decide <laughs> if hot dog's a sandwich. And then we're having this conversation. And so we post it and, and everything that we do is very real time. And and words can be very relevant in real time. And so this is a true story. This hot dog is a sandwich. And so we wrote something about is a hot dog a sandwich. And we posted it before Memorial Day. And oh my God, I did not know people have such strong and deeply held convictions <laughs> about whether or not a hot dog is a sandwich. And this, <laughs> this was is like America. It's America. This is America. <laughs> and so this was like a thing, you know, with capital T and like we got press coverage for this. This was our first, this was actually our first big thing. Was was a, is a hot dog a sandwich? This is unbelievable because, like, if you turn to most people that market brands, they assume they need a giant budget, no creative constraints at all. They got to be on every channel, and you guys are like setting up constraint after constraint. It's like here's the tone of voice. It's us. I see it in Slack. Put it out there. It's Twitter. It's you know, like you guys are clearly just doing what feels natural, and it does have this kind of elevated, like I don't know, amazing creativity to it. Well, I think there are a couple of things, you know, one is, and, you know, partly the first person to note this, which is sometimes greater creativity happens with smaller parameters. Amen. Amen. Yes. So, so you need to really narrow down your focus and then knock that thing out of the park. And so that's one piece. And, and the other piece is, I think that Again, you have to know sort of what your power is. And I think for us, the power is connecting language to people's everyday. And speaking of everyday. Merriam-Webster's Twitter account has been taking subtle jabs at President Trump. Merriam-Webster has trolled Trump in the past. They poked fun when he invented a word unprecedented in a missive about China. And they went after Kellyanne Conway for the phrase alternative facts. Clearly, Merriam-Webster has an anti-Trump bias. Day after day, as candidate and then President Trump and his associates would spout all these things that may or may not have been based in reality, spoiler, the answer is not, Merriam-Webster would tweet all this related stuff. As for bias, however, not so much. As events unfold... It drives people to the dictionary. And so we get what we call these trending lookups, which is a word that is not usually looked up at a very high volume, is suddenly being looked up at an exceedingly high volume. Words like, and this is all true, fascism, demagogue, and even facts 
We're all trending. And so we report on that. And that's really interesting because it's real time. And I think that's another reason that Twitter has been a good platform for us because when you want to know what a word means, you kind of want to know what it means yeah. at, at the minute that you want to know. Right. And it's very real time. And, you know, if something's happening, if the Cubs are playing in the World Series and the announcer says, irregardless. Oh, my gosh, I'm shuddering. I'm an English lit major. Settle the, okay. settle the score here. Yeah. Join the club. Um, so the announcer said, irregardless. And everybody went first to Twitter to say, oh, my God, I can't believe he said irregardless. Irregardless is not a word. Yes. And then they went to the dictionary to confirm that it's not a word. Um, and I'm sorry to say that yep. irregardless is a word. Right. And it's because of the colloquial usage, no? Like you said, you're descriptivist, not prescriptive. Exactly. And it's because so many people started to use it, I'm guessing, right? Is that what happened? That, that is exactly correct. Mm. Um, and it's also marked as non-standard. To be clear, that's non-standard, not alternative. And so, this reporting on trending lookups, plus the hilarious voice they use to deliver those facts, again, facts, caused a public frenzy. Merriam-Webster more than doubled their followers. They're up to 410,000 at the time of this recording. And they even grew their impression total 6,000% and their media placements 7,000% year over year. Because who is covering a dictionary in the press? Turns out today, everybody. The Washington Post, BuzzFeed, Slate.com, USA Today, Fox News, ABC News, NBC News, The New York Times, even Vogue. Vogue, you guys. Vogue. Merriam-Webster's Dictionary is literally in Vogue. Lisa set out with her aspiration and her team to make that dictionary cool again. And to that, I'd say, mission accomplished. Very quickly, this became, and I sort of hate this word, but it did start becoming viral. I mean, we didn't, I will say, we, didn't, we have not spent any money to acquire followers at all. Wow. We don't any promoted posts. We haven't sent anything out. It's been totally organic. People have often described us as sassy, and I think that that's true. But I think the key is that we're sassy with a purpose, and we're smart and grounded, and that we take our mission very seriously. And, and that's such a hard thing to strike, that if I were to say to you, can you come up with a tone in your writing, whatever channel you're using, Twitter or otherwise, that is both funny and profound? I feel like you would trip all over yourself trying to manufacture this, right? Like, do you, it seems like you benefit totally. from it being authentic, being you. Totally. I, I had this conversation recently with somebody who asked a similar question, which is, you know, how would you define it? But they were trying to make it retroactive as if I sat there and said, this is how our voice is going to be. And I kind of ticked off these boxes yeah. and made a little list and passed it around the staff. And I agree with you that that wouldn't have worked. It would have sounded really good on paper and it never would have worked. You know, think about the advice that you get as a child as you're growing up. You know, be you. No one else can be you. Don't copy this guy and don't copy that guy. Just be yourself. And I think understanding what is unique about who you are and what you have to bring and what your message is and really um, communicating that in, in an open and transparent way is very powerful. People respond to other people that are open and transparent and, and I think to a certain extent giving, right? We have all of this expertise 
at Merriam-Webster, and we want to share it with everybody. We, you know, we want to help people. We certainly want them to love language as much as we do, and people can tell. And the only reason it works is because it's not a marketing construct. It's who we really are. We had a lot of help making this episode today. I want to thank the aptly named Tom Webster, who voiced the dictionary. Aspiration. Noun. A strong desire to achieve something high or great. Like this podcast. Thanks to Andrew Littlefield for his story today. All right, going to give you another take there. Thanks to Mariel for her great trombone playing for us. You can actually check the show notes for her website. She's super talented. Thank you to Lisa Schneider and her great team. And thanks to you, by the way. Lots of you volunteered when I put out the call to voice the dictionary. I'm Jay Akunzo. Thank you so much for listening. I'll talk to you in a week. But until then, trust your intuition. Of Brobnegian proportion... No. <laughs> wow. Of Brobdenic... Of Brobden... Okay, it was big. It was really big. The dictionary made a big change, you guys, all right? <laughs>